The Old Testament reading for today and our sermon text will be Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. The New Testament reading will be Acts 2, 37 through 42. As the children are getting settled, once again, I'd like to invite you to our afternoon worship service, which begins at 12.15. We sing a little bit, we pray corporately, and that is a very precious time. And also I preach catechetically through these great doctrines that are introduced to the children and to all of us in the morning service. I would encourage you to come. I think it's a very important thing that we do in the afternoon worship service. Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The New Testament reading is Acts 2, verses 37 through 42. Acts 2, 37. Here we have an account of what happened after Peter, the apostle, preached on the day of Pentecost, uh, preached the gospel. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In our study of the book of Exodus, we've come now to the second of the Ten Commandments, which forbids idolatry. And by way of introduction, I think it would be good for me to remind you that the first four of the Ten Commandments teach us about how we are to relate to God, whereas the last six of the Ten Commandments teach us about how we are to relate to our fellow man. And this can be easily observed in the Ten Commandments themselves. But it is also seen in the answer that Christ gave to the question, which is the great commandment in the law? You will notice that Christ was asked to identify the single greatest commandment. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which one, Jesus, the lawyer asked him. But Christ picked two. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. As I've said in previous sermons, the command from Deuteronomy 6.5, Love the Lord your God with all that you are, sums up the first four of the Ten Commandments. And the commandment from Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself, sums up 
the last six. Indeed, the whole law of Moses depends upon these two. And I would like to spend just a moment with you thinking a little more carefully about the relationship between the Ten Commandments and the two which summarize them. What do the two commandments which Christ picked help us to understand about God's law? What do those two help us with? Well, they get to the heart of the matter, don't they? They help us to understand that if we are going to keep God's law truly, we must do so from the heart. God's law is not to be obeyed merely in an external or superficial way. God is not interested in seeing His people go through the motions, if you will. He was not even interested in this in Old Testament times. Certainly, He is not interested in this now. And so, if we are going to keep God's law truly and sincerely, we must do what God has said, we must abstain from what He has forbidden, and we must do this from a heart of love. The Old Testament itself says so. The greatest commandments are summarized with this. Love God with everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is to obey God's law. So then, I might ask this question, why didn't God just say that? Have you ever wondered? If these two commandments, these simple commandments found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, get to the heart of the matter, if they summarize the whole of the law of God that was given to Israel in the day of, days of Moses... Why didn't the Lord just say that and, and kind of be done with it? You know, why, why the ten? Why the hundreds of laws that were added uh, to, to the ten? I think the answer is this. The ten commandments teach us how we are to love. Yes, it is true that love is the essence of the moral law. To love God and neighbor is the summary of the moral law. The two which summarize the ten are vitally important, for they do get to the heart of the matter. They help us to see that if we are to truly obey God's law, we must do it from the heart. But the ten are vitally important too, for they bring clarity to the question, how are we to love God? How are we to love our neighbor? You know, it seems to me that we live in a day and age where men and women are more comfortable with the two commandments that Christ highlighted than with the ten. Think about that for a moment. And I suppose that some might say, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Because uh, the two commandments get to the heart of the issue. Love is what matters. Well, I don't really think that's what's going on here. Instead, I'm afraid that men and women are more comfortable with the two than with the ten because they do not want to be bothered or constrained by the specifics of God's moral law. Are you tracking with me, you see? They, they like the two, perhaps. Yes, that sounds awfully nice, doesn't it? Here is the essence of God's law. Love God with everything that you are from the heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. But that can be misconstrued, can't it? In other words, some might take that to mean love God however you want and love your neighbor however you see best. But the Ten Commandments do something. They begin to specify what it means to love God. Here is how we are to love God specifically. And also here is how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, the Ten Commandments bring the specifics to us concerning the love that we are to have for God and neighbor. Our, our culture loves to talk about love. Uh, love is what makes the difference, they say. It's all about love. Love is love. You know how our culture talks about love, don't you? But uh, what does that mean in concrete terms? 
What does this love look like as it pertains to our relationship with God and man? And pay careful attention to this, brothers and sisters. God has not left that question unanswered. Love is not merely a subjective emotion with questions of application left open to interpretation or personal opinion. No, God is love. He has commanded us to love and He has given us the moral law so that we might know what it means to love truly and in practice. The two commandments which summarize the ten are vitally important because they get to the heart of the matter. To obey God's law truly, we must love Him with all that we are and our neighbor as ourselves. But the ten are vitally important too for they provide us with something concrete as it pertains to the question, what does it mean to love God and neighbor? In other words, the Ten Commandments provide us with unchanging moral clarity. This relationship between the two and the ten can be seen in the words of Jesus to His disciples. Jesus spoke to His disciples and said this, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Did you hear it? Okay. If you love Me, you will keep my commandments. So the two are related. We are not just to love God any way we wish. We are to love God by obeying the commandments that He has given to us. A little bit later in that same passage in John 14, He says the opposite. Whoever does not love Me does not keep My words. And lest anyone think that Christ's moral law is different from the moral law which God revealed at Sinai, he adds, And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, I have not come preaching my own word. I have not come inventing my own morality, as it were. But I come bringing the word of the Father to you. And so Jesus links these two concepts tightly together. Yes, you are to love me, but you are to love me by keeping my commandments. The two things are tightly linked with one another. To love God with all that we are means that we obey the moral law which is summarized in the Ten Commandments and to obey the moral law through faith in Christ and from the heart is to love God with all that we are. Dear brothers and sisters, you must do away with this idea that love is merely an emotion. Furthermore, you must do away with the idea that what love is in action is for us to decide. No, in fact, morality is not determined by man. It comes from God. He has given us His moral law and we must submit ourselves to it if we wish to do what is right and to love truly. As I've said, the first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with man's relationship to God. And the first commandment is first for a reason. If we wish to have a right relationship with God, then we must know Yahweh as God alone. We must have Him as our God and give to Him the worship that is due His name. This is what the first commandment requires. You shall have no other gods before Me, He says. It forbids us from worshiping any created thing as if it were divine. It requires us to worship and serve God alone as God. So you can see that the first commandment tells us who the object of our worship must be. Yahweh alone is to be the object of our worship. And notice now that the next three commandments have to do with the way of worship. Uh, That is what is going on here in the Ten Commandments. The first four have to do with our relationship to God. The first one tells us who the object of our worship is to be, Yahweh alone. And then the next three tell us something about 
the way of worship. Yahweh alone is to be worshipped. The first commandment makes that clear. But how is He to be worshipped? Do you see? It's not to be worshipped in any way that we think. He's to be worshipped according to what God has said. How is He to be worshipped? That is the question that the second commandment addresses when it says, in brief, not with idols. The third commandment will address the attitude of worship, demanding reverence for God's name. And the fourth commandment will say something to us about the time of worship. One day in seven is to be set apart as holy for rest and for worship. Again, the first commandment tells us who is to be worshipped. Commands 2, 3, and 4 tell us how God is to be worshipped. Let us now consider the second commandment itself. What is the law? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. In brief, the second commandment forbids idolatry. So then God alone is to be worshipped and He is not to be worshipped through images. Images are not to be used in the worship of God. Take special notice of this, brothers and sisters. Though the first and second commandments are certainly related, they both have to do with the worship of God, they are not the same. They are in fact two distinct commandments. The first commandment forbids the worship of any other so-called gods. This would obviously include worshipping other gods in the form of idols. Worship God alone, do not worship any other gods. That would include worshiping other gods in the form of idols. And if that was the only thing that God wished to address, then the second commandment would not be needed. If God were only forbidding the worship of other gods through idols, then the second commandment would not be needed. You, you see what I mean there, right? The command, you shall have no other gods before me, certainly includes other gods in the form of idols. But the second commandment says more than this. Not only does it forbid making images of false gods, it also forbids making images of the one true God. You are to worship me alone, no other gods before me, commandment one says, and no images, commandment two says. In other words, even if you come to worship me, um, be sure that you do not use idols in the worship of my name. So the second commandment is related to the first, but it says more. It forbids idolatry as it pertains to the worship of false gods, but also the one true God. All of the nations that surrounded Israel in the ancient world worshipped their gods through idols. They carved or cast images of earthly materials in the form of earthly things, and they bowed before them, prayed to them, and offered up sacrifices to them, imagining that they could earn favor from the God that those idols represented. That's how the nations worshipped. All of the nations that surrounded Israel worshipped in this way. And it is hard to imagine that Israel was not tempted to do the same. In other words, 
even if they were to keep the first commandment and have Yahweh as their only God, they would still be tempted to make an image of Him, for this is how all of the surrounding nations worshipped. This was the way that the Egyptians worshipped. And we know that Israel spent a long time there in that culture before being redeemed by the Lord. And this is why the Lord, after saying, You shall have no other gods before Me, also said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Do not do what the nations do. They worship their gods through images, not you, Israel. You're not to worship me in this way. Just a moment ago I said it's not hard to imagine that Israel was tempted to make idols given the influence of the nations around them. In fact, we do not have to imagine. We know they were tempted to do this. We will come to this story in Exodus 32 uh, in due time, and so I will not spend much time on it. But do you remember what Moses returned to when he came down from Sinai with the Ten Commandments written on stone? Remember that? Went up to the mountain, the Lord gave him the law, even wrote the Ten Commandments on stone with his finger. He comes down the mountain, he hears a sound. What are the people doing? They had, they had convinced Aaron, the priest, to make an image, a golden calf, so that they might worship uh, through that image. Uh, they had convinced Aaron of this. He should have known better, of course. He had already heard God's law. And Moses dropped the tablets and broke them, which was certainly symbolic. In other words, the covenant had barely been made and the people had already broken the covenant by violating both the first and second commandment. I say they violated both the first and the second because the calf did not represent Yahweh only, but other gods too, as we will see. But God was merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The first commandment forbids the worship of false gods. It requires the worship of Yahweh alone. And the second commandment forbids the making of graven images or the likeness of anything in all of creation for use in worship, whether it be the worship of false gods or the worship of the one true God. In brief, all forms of idolatry are here in this passage forbidden, in this commandment forbidden. In just a moment we're going to get, go deeper as we attempt to get to the heart of the second commandment. But before we do, let us briefly consider the word of warning that is given, starting in the middle of verse 5, with the word for. You shall not bow down to idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Some have been bothered by this idea that the Lord is a jealous God. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord is a jealous God, he says here, in the word of warning that is attached to the second commandment. But I think people have only been bothered by this because they have failed to distinguish between jealousy that is sinful and jealousy that is righteous. I'm sure you know that there is a kind of anger that is sinful. And there is also a kind of anger that is righteous. That concept is more familiar to us, I think. A sinful anger is anger that is misdirected. Sinful anger is anger that is out of bounds. Anger that turns to bitterness is sinful. And so too is anger that turns to rage. But... It is right for us to be angry at the right things, that which is truly sinful or unjust, and to be moved to do what is right in our anger in a wise and self-controlled way. So there is a righteous 
kind of anger and there is an unrighteous kind of anger. And the same is true for jealousy. If your jealousy is motivated by envy, greed, and discontentment, it is sinful. And if your jealousy overflows its proper bounds, leading you to be consumed by it and to think and do that which is evil, it is also sinful. But there is also a righteous kind of jealousy. It is right for God and for man to be jealous or zealous for what is is rightly theirs. In human experience, nowhere is this more obvious than in the marriage relationship. It It is perfectly right for a husband and wife to be jealous for each other. Think of that for a moment. A husband ought to be jealous for his wife's loyalty and love. And a wife is right to be jealous to have her husband's loyalty and love. The thought of disloyalty, in other words, and unfaithfulness should naturally produce a kind of righteous anger within us, you see. Some of you have learned to think of jealousy only in negative and sinful terms, so this concept's hard for you to wrap your heads around. But I I think we need to adjust our thinking on this. Again, I will say, it is right for a husband and wife to be jealous for each other. Jealous for the right thing and, and jealous within its proper bounds. I'm not talking about sinful jealousy. Jealousy that overruns its proper bounds and consumes you. No, I'm saying there is a righteous kind of jealousy. Jealousy that is evil longs to have things that rightly belong to others, but not to you. Did you hear that? Jealousy that is evil longs to have things that rightly belong to others, but not to you. Jealousy that is out of control and all-consuming is also evil. Here I am simply observing that there is a kind of jealousy that is right. It is right for us to desire to have that which is rightfully ours. It is right that we are angered when something that is rightly ours is taken from us and given to another And this is the kind of jealousy that God has. Jealousy in God is not a flaw, it is a perfection. When the scriptures say that God is jealous, they do not mean that He is jealous in a sinful way, nor do the scriptures mean that God is jealous in the way that humans are jealous. We as humans experience fluctuations in emotions, but God does not change. Jealousy in God is an unchanging and untainted perfection. Here in Exodus 20, the human emotion of jealousy is attributed to God to tell us something that is true about Him, namely, that God is worthy of all praise, that He is holy and He is just, and God's perfect justice and anger will fall upon all who take what is rightly His and give it to another. We must not forget that here in Exodus 20 and following, God is entering into a covenant with Israel. We must not forget that. In other passages of Scripture, this covenantal relationship between God and Israel is compared to a marriage. God is displeased with all who take the worship that is due to His name and give it to another. But we may say that God was especially displeased with His bride, Israel, when she took the worship that was due to him and gave it to idols. This is why Israel is often compared to a harlot or to an unfaithful wife in the scriptures. Idolatry is sometimes likened to adultery. When Israel worshipped idols, she did not merely violate God's moral law. She was also unfaithful to the marriage covenant that God had entered 
into with her in the days of Moses. And if you wish to see a vivid image of this reality, you may read the book of Hosea. Uh, that is certainly what is portrayed there. Israel, Israel is rebuked for their habitual spiritual adultery. Uh, there Israel is portrayed as an unfaithful wife. Indeed, that is what she was under the Old Covenant. For God had said, You shall worship me alone, and you shall not worship with idols. And yet Israel continuously would go astray. Is God a jealous God? Answer, yes, but not in the way that men and women are jealous. For God does not change. He does not experience the ebb and flow of emotions as we do. His jealousy is perfect and it is pure. Next, we come to the remark about God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love Him and keep His commandments. Before I tell you what this means, let me tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean that children may be spiritually cursed because of the sins of their father or mother or previous generations. I wonder if you've ever encountered this teaching. I've, I've encountered it repeatedly over the years. It is the doctrine of generational curses, and I say it is garbage. Nowhere do the Scriptures teach, not here or in any other place, that one generation is spiritually cursed by God because of the sins of the previous generation. And it does in fact anger me to think that this nonsense is taught even to Christians. Some will say that even those in Christ may experience spiritual bondage after they repent and believe or be under a curse somehow because of the sins of their father or mother. I've encountered this repeatedly over the years and it angers me to think of it. Are we not free in Christ? Have we not been delivered from the domain of darkness? Are we not adopted as God's beloved children? To have someone say to a Christian, No, in fact, because of the sins of previous generations, you are still in spiritual bondage, though you are a Christian. The thought of it angers me. It's to turn the gospel into no gospel at all. It's a dark and damaging false teaching uh, that we encounter here. What then does this passage mean? It means something, of course. Well, I've emphasized over and over again that the covenant that God entered into with Israel in the days of Moses was earthly. The covenant that God entered into to with Israel in the days of Moses was earthly. Their redemption was earthly. The blessings for covenant faithfulness were earthly. The curses for covenant unfaithfulness were earthly too. Israel would be blessed in the land that God would give to them if they obeyed, and they would be cursed in the land if they disobeyed the terms of the covenant. Everything about the old Mosaic covenant itself was earthly. Yes, it is true. The promises that were entrusted to them were spiritual and eternal. But the Mosaic covenant itself was earthly. And it would be hard for me to overstate how vitally important this point is, and it is important here as we seek to interpret Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6. In what sense would God visit the iniquity of the idolatry of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him? I say, if you wish to know, simply read the rest of the Old Testament and you will see. The fathers would sin and the children would often suffer the consequences. Not only that, 
But the fathers would sin, and the children would learn to sin too. I, I certainly do not deny that this happens. The sins of fathers and mothers are often learned and adopted by the children. But that is different from the so-called generational curses teaching that I've mentioned just a moment ago. This is true of all kinds of sin, but this was especially true, and is especially true, of the sin of, of idolatry. Once false worship is introduced, it's very difficult to root out, you see. It's very difficult to reform. And we know that God is very displeased with false worship. He will not share the glory that is due to Him with any other and what I am saying is that this is how things go in nations. The fathers act foolishly, or the fathers sin, and the children of that nation suffer the consequences for it, sometimes for many generations. This was especially true of Old Covenant Israel, given the terms of the covenant of works which God made with them in the days of Moses. Obedience would bring blessings to the nation. Disobedience would bring curses to the nation. When the fathers sinned, the curses of the covenant would be felt by the children. Think of all of the children, for example, who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Why did they wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Was it not the sins of their father that led them there, that kept them there in that place? They were faithless, and it was the children who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Think of all of the Israelite children who were born and raised in Babylonian captivity. Why were they there, born and raised in Babylon? Why were they separated from the land and from Jerusalem? Was it not the sins of their fathers that, that put them there? But the opposite was also true. Covenant loyalty would bring covenant blessings upon future generations. And that is what the Lord was calling Israel to do. Notice how He says that He will show steadfast love. Some translations say covenant faithfulness. I think that is in fact a better translation. He would show covenant faithfulness to thousands of those who love Him and keep His commandments, you see. And so in the Old Covenant, in the nation of Israel, the children would often suffer as a nation for the sins of their forefathers. But also the children would be blessed by the Lord if the fathers would keep the covenant that God had transacted with them. To, to sum it up, we must understand that this remark about sins of the fathers being visited on the children to the third and fourth generation was made in the context of the making of a national covenant with earthly blessings and curses being promised to the obedient and disobedient nation. And that is something very different from this idea that individual souls may be spiritually cursed because of their, the sins of their forefathers. That wasn't true under the Old Covenant, and it certainly isn't true under the New. I want you to listen to Ezekiel 18, 1-4, written in the days of the Old Covenant. The word of the Lord came to me, says the prophet, What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. I love that expression, you know. Why do you say this? Why do you say this? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth have been set on edge. In other words, the fathers have done something, but the children have felt the effects of it. Why do you say this? As I live, I continue now in Ezekiel 18, As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, 
All souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. You see. So yes, this principle that is here attached to the giving of the second commandment is certainly true. The children did suffer for the sins of the fathers in this national covenant where there was unfaithfulness. But this principle is also true. Each soul, spiritually, stands independent before God. The one who sins will pay the price for it, spiritually and for all eternity. So we know what the second commandment is. In brief, no carved or graven images. No idols of any kind are to be used in the worship of God. Warnings are added to that command, but the command itself forbids idolatry. So let us go now to the heart of the matter. And to do so, I would like to again use our our catechism, questions 55 and 56. It's very helpful. Question 55 of our catechism asks, What is required in the second commandment? Answer, The second commandment, requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in His Word. That is what is required in the second commandment which forbids idolatry. Question 56 asks, What is forbidden in the second commandment? Answer, The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in His Word. So the simple and obvious answer to the question, what does the second commandment forbid, is the second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images. And have you ever wondered why idolatry is forbidden? Like what's really the problem with idolatry? If we're going to worship the one true God, why can we not use images in the worship of the one true God? Why is idolatry forbidden? I suppose some might say, It's not even up to us to know why. God said, don't use idols, so we just shouldn't use idols. And and that is true enough. But why is idolatry forbidden? In fact, I suppose a case could be made that idols could help facilitate worship by engaging the senses of sight and of touch. Can you hear somebody making that case? But, But God, the nations use idols. And do you see how it helps them? The the nations use idols, and and instead of just thinking of a God who is invisible, it gives them something to see, you know. It it gives them something to bow before. They could even touch the thing, perhaps, you know, and it, it just engages the senses more. So why can't we use idols, God? In fact, it gives the people something to rally around, you know, an image to rally around and to have as their own. It helps with national identity, therefore. But the problem is this. Idols always and in every instance, misrepresent God, who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Idols always, and in every instance, tell a lie about God, for God is invisible. He is a most pure spirit. Idols, no matter how big, no matter how impressive, no matter what they're made out of, no matter how precious the material is, they always make God small in the mind of the worshiper. Furthermore, they would blur the distinction between creator and creature. Yahweh simply cannot be represented by idols. Idols will always communicate a lie concerning who God is. Idols will always make God small in the minds of the worshiper. So the second commandment forbids idols. 
But thinking back to the answer that our catechism gave, both to the question, what does the second commandment require and forbid, um, I want you to notice that our catechism picks up on something else that is very important. It's a general observation that is sadly often overlooked, and it is this. According to the Ten Commandments, not only is God alone to be worshipped, but He is to be worshipped in the way that He has prescribed, ordained, or appointed in His Word. In other words, the second commandment does not only forbid idolatry, it requires, by way of strong and clear implication, that God's people receive, submit to, and obey God's word as it pertains to the way of worship. In the moment that God says, worship me, but not by idols, God is saying, worship me in the way that I tell you to worship me. It's not up to you. But I am not only telling you to worship me, also I am saying, worship me in this way, not by idols. So true, the second commandment simply forbids the use of images in the worship of God, but there's something bigger going on here. There's something bigger going on here. As I have said in commandments 3 through 4, commandments 2 through 4, God is addressing the way of worship. We are to worship him not with images. We are to worship him with reverence for his name. We are to worship him observing one day out of 7 as holy, wherein we rest from our normal labors and worship. All of this is to be done with love for God in our hearts. The Lord alone is to be worshipped, and He is to be worshipped in the way that He has prescribed, not according to the inventions of man. What I'm saying is this, the second commandment is violated, not only when God's people use images to worship Him, but when God's people ignore what God has said regarding the way they are to worship. What are the most fundamental principles that God has revealed to us concerning the way of worship? Again, no images. This deals with the form. We are to have reverence for the name of God. This has to do with the attitude of our worship. One day in seven is to be observed. This has to do with the time of worship. Now I might ask you this. Did these principles only apply to Israel under the Old Covenant? We say, no. Certainly they did not apply only to Israel. These laws are ever abiding. In the Ten Commandments, we find a summary of God's moral law. These principles that are here contained in the Ten Commandments applied to Adam and to us. They apply to all men at all times and places. Again, we are to remember that these are from the Ten Commandments, which summarize God's moral law. But did God have more to say to Israel concerning the way of worship under the Old Covenant? Those of you who know your Bibles know that God had a lot more to say to Israel concerning the way of worship. I've said this before, these Ten Commandments functioned as the foundation or core of all of the laws that God would give to Israel. God would add other laws to these ten, and those other laws were in fact unique to Israel under the old Mosaic Covenant. We call these other laws positive laws because God added them to His moral law. So, so think of it with me. The natural law or the moral law was written on Adam's heart at the time of creation. But positive laws were also added to him under that covenant that God made with him in the garden before sin entered into the world. He was to abstain from the tree of knowledge of good and evil as he expanded and kept God's garden temple. So this same law that we have in the Ten Commandments, the moral law that is summarized there, was on Adam's heart. Adam knew that he was to worship God alone. 
Adam knew that he was not to worship through idols. Adam knew that he was to have reverence for God's name. Adam knew that he was to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Yes, even in the garden before sin entered into the world. But then God added other commandments to those moral commandments that were written on his heart through his creation in the image of God. He knew that he was also to abstain from this particular tree so that he might eat of this one. These are positive laws that were given to Adam. Something similar happened in the days of Abraham. Something similar happened to a much greater extent in the days of Moses. In the days of Moses, God gave Israel the moral law. He wrote them on stone. And then he would greatly expand upon those moral principles that were summarized there. Israel, we know, was to do many things, very specific things in the worship of God. They were to worship at the temple. They were to worship through the priesthood. They were to have ceremonial washings. They were to offer up certain kinds of sacrifices to the Lord. They were to observe certain holy days in addition to the, to the seventh day Sabbath that was given to them. They were to worship in a very particular way. And what I am saying to you is that all of those laws that I've just mentioned were positive laws. They were added to the unchanging and eternal moral law of God, which is here summarized in the Ten Commandments. Brothers and sisters, the Old Covenant has passed away. The New Covenant has come. And this is why the positive laws of the Old Covenant have passed away. For they were attached specifically to the Old Covenant. We, we, by the way, are not commanded to eat of the tree of life and to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why, why is that? The Bible says it, doesn't it? Why, why are we not commanded to abstain from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and to eat of the tree of life? Because that was what Adam was to do. He broke that covenant. We live under the consequences of that and under that broken covenant. But those were positive laws that were given to Adam in the garden. That covenant is broken, you see. And neither are we called to worship at the temple in Jerusalem or to abstain from certain kinds of foods, or to engage in all of those ceremonial washings, you see. It's in the Bible though, isn't it? Aren't we to do these things? It's biblical. No, we're not, because those were positive laws that were added and attached to the old Mosaic covenant. Tell me, brothers and sisters, though, has God's moral law changed? No. We still are to worship God alone. We are still to not use images in the worship of God. We are to have reverence for His name. And we are to honor the Lord's Day Sabbath to keep it holy, you see. That time of worship is to be set aside for the worship of God, even still to this day. And if you think of it, the New Covenant also has positive laws of its own. Laws that have been added to this moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. What are they? Well, we know that under the New Covenant, those who profess faith in Christ, they are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who profess faith in Christ and who have been baptized are to be taught to observe everything that Christ has commanded to us. They are to sit under the ministry of the Word of God in the local congregation. They are to pray. They are to partake of the Lord's Supper. They are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, these are the elements of New Covenant worship. These are positive laws, if you will, that have been added uh, to the moral law of God which is eternal and unchanging. These are the positive laws of the new covenant. The moral law remains though. The moral law remains. The way of worship, however, has been revealed to those of us who live under the new covenant. It is not left for man to determine. 
And if you were to step back from all of this and you were to analyze what you have experienced in Christianity in this country or how those who profess faith in Christ worship in this country, you, you might say, my goodness, the second commandment is violated constantly. At the beginning of this sermon, if I were to ask you, do we have a problem today as modern Christians with violating the second commandment, you might have said, no, not really. I don't see very many Christians bowing down to idols. That's what the second commandment forbids, no idols. Okay. But considered in this way, when we consider the fact that here in the second commandment, God prescribes that He be worshipped in a particular way, and as we rightly expand upon all of that, if I were to ask you now, do we have a problem with violating the second commandment today in the modern church? I think you might answer differently. Yes, we do. How many people routinely neglect the Lord's Day Sabbath and do not honor it as holy? How many churches um, engage in all kinds of things as the people of God gather on a Sunday morning for worship, things not prescribed in God's most holy word? How many churches think it's up to them to figure out how to do church and how to do worship? No. God commands that we worship Him alone and He has always, be it in the garden, be it in the days of Abraham, be it in the days of Moses, and be it under the new covenant, God has always prescribed the way of worship to His people. He has told us that we are to worship Him and He has also revealed to us how we are to worship Him. Brothers and sisters, as it pertains to the second commandment which forbids idolatry, I ask you, have you kept this law Perfectly? The answer is no. We have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. So, would you hear now the gospel? You've heard the law. Hear now the gospel. Unlike Adam and unlike Israel, Jesus, the Messiah, kept the law of God perfectly. He Worshipped God alone. Never did he bow down to or serve idols. He had perfect reverence for the name of God. And he honored the Sabbath day and kept it holy. And not only did Jesus obey the moral law with perfection, he also kept the positive laws of the Old Covenant too. For he was a Hebrew born under the Old Covenant and the law of Moses which governed it. Jesus kept the moral law of God perfectly. He kept the positive laws of the Old Covenant too. Jesus kept the ten words. He kept all of the positive laws of the Old Covenant which were added to them. And He kept them from the heart. In His human nature and upheld by His divine nature, His love for God and neighbor was perfect and without flaw. As it pertained to His love for God, He came to do His Father's will, and He accomplished it. Perfectly so. Christ Jesus was righteous, therefore. He was guiltless. He was without sin. Death, which is the price that must be paid for sin, was not owed by Him. But He died for sin, not for His own, but for the sins of those given to Him by the Father in eternity. You may see John 17 to learn more about that. He 
paid for the sins of those given to Him by the Father in eternity in obedience to the terms of the eternal covenant. Christ has His righteousness to give, therefore, along with the forgiveness of sins, as a free gift to all who will believe in Him. This is what Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This salvation has been made available because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. These indeed are the greatest blessings of salvation, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. But these are not the only blessings of the new covenant. In Christ we are made new. In Christ the law of God is written anew and afresh upon our hearts. In Christ we are filled with the promised Holy Spirit. And God by His Word and Spirit not only makes us willing and able to believe upon Christ, He sanctifies us too. Those in Christ will learn God's law. They will love God's law and will be empowered to keep God's law more and more with the passing of time. This also is good news, brothers and sisters. When I say, what is the good news? Well, we have the the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life eternal available to us through faith in Christ. Yes, that is the greatest blessing, of course. But this is good news too. In Christ we have regeneration. In Christ we have a new heart. In Christ we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to in fact obey God's law from the heart and with love in our heart for God. All of this is by the grace of God. But brothers and sisters, obedience is something we must choose to do. We must choose to do it not in our strength, but in the strength which God provides. This is the gospel. Though it is true that we have violated God's law in thought, word, and deed, and though it is true that we are by nature under God's wrath and curse, it is also true that God has provided a Savior, Christ the Lord. The forgiveness of sins and life eternal is available through faith in Him. And we know that all who come to Him have been renewed by the Spirit and have been freed from bondage to sin, have been born again to walk in newness of life as God's beloved children. So, brothers and sisters, I say to you this morning, and I will continue to say it always, but especially in our consideration of the Ten Commandments, let us pursue holiness. Let us be moved by our love for God. Let us be moved by our gratitude for all that God has graciously bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. Let us pursue holiness, being empowered by the Helper, the Holy Spirit of promise. And as it pertains to the text today in particular, Let us be careful to worship God alone in the way that God has prescribed in His Word, so that we might do what the second commandment requires, while also avoiding all that it forbids. Let us bow together for a word of prayer now. Father in heaven, we thank You for the law, for the moral law, which was written on Adam's heart at creation, which was written on stone in the days of Moses, which is written upon our hearts through regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We thank You for Your law, for it shows us the way in which we should go. We thank You for the way that You also use it to convict us of sin and to drive us back to Christ again and again. Indeed, God, we confess that we have sinned against You, even as it pertains to this second of the Ten Commandments. Some perhaps have bowed before idols, I think we all, though, have neglected to worship You in the way that You have prescribed. God, forgive us and enable us, we pray, to live in obedience to You in all things. 
If we do not have the desire, O God, we pray that you would give us the desire to live in obedience to your revealed will. Convict us of sin where it is is present and help us, O God, to repent truly and sincerely. Father, empower us to pursue holiness, O Lord. We, We confess that even this, though, is by your grace alone. It is a gift from you, and so we pray that you would give it. In Christ's name we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.